Welcome to Practice Freedom. What if you could hang out with owners and founders from all sorts of healthcare private practices, having rich conversations about their successes and their failures, and then take an insight or two to inspire your own growth? Each week on Practice Freedom, we take an in-depth look at how to get the most out of both the clinical side and the business side of the practice, get the most out of your people, and most of all, how to live the healthy life that you deserve. I'm Mark Henderson Leary. I'm a business coach and an entrepreneurial operating system implementer. I have a passion that everyone should feel in control of their life. And so what I do is I help you get control of your business. Part of how I do that is by letting you listen in on these conversations in order to make the biggest impact in your practice and ultimately live your best life. Let's get started. All right, so I'm looking forward to you giving some feedback on this one. This is Dr. Keith Johnson, my friend from El Paso. So this is in contrast to some of the previous interviews where we've talked to people who are way on the other side of scaling, way you know, maybe post-exit, and we've talked about the value of private equity. But Keith's a little closer to the ground, and so you get to the, in the mindset of what it is when you're still in the fight. <laughs> and probably a lot of people listening We'll relate more to the mindset of Dr. Keith here. So he runs a, an orthopedic practice in El Paso, Texas, has one surgical center and is in the process of getting ready to launch another one. And so he's living that entrepreneurial life in that capacity and juggling a lot of different things. And you'll hear the mindset of the power and the responsibility. And I think the theme we kind of agreed to was saying no and, and what that means. How do we focus our energy and how do we focus our time? and the obstacles that go into that. And some of the counterintuitive forces, things like that I didn't expect to uncover a big aha for me was that money guilt, that uh, a lot of doctors might have money guilt and a lot of the hospital system can teach that unintentionally. And we learned that, but we, I didn't go to medical school. You guys can learn that in medical school that, that makes you feel like this weird contradiction between the profitability and the money and all the weird mixed messages that the hospitals send and feeling like we should be giving away these gifts. And maybe you do in some cases, but there's a little value. You need a business that operates and goes with that. So have a listen to Keith and where he's at in our conversation. It's a lot of fun to reconnect with him. We hadn't talked in a while and give us some feedback. We'll see you at the end. Hey, quick little encouragement here. One of the things that's so valuable for us and yet so hard to get is good feedback. Everybody's got it. Everybody says it out loud or in their head, but such a small amount of it makes it to me. So we're doing everything we can to make it as easy as possible to get it to us. So in the show notes, there's a link. You can click it and you can send us a voice memo. So please do that. Send us that feedback. We want everything. Ask us questions, whatever you got. We're going to keep the conversation going. We're going to continue to obsess on making it, on ways to make it easier to get the feedback to and from us because I want this to be an ongoing conversation with everybody. And so uh, I guess two things, bear with us as we figure that out, but also please pressure test the system and use the tools and send us some information and send us some feedback and, and give us all your feedback along the way. And if for some reason, well, for any reason, you're finding it hard to get in touch with us or give us feedback, please send us that. And uh, we'll figure out how to meet you where you are, because this is an important conversation. So again, show notes, look for the link to send us a voice memo or anything you find access to. Shoot us an email, go for the website. But certainly uh, sending the voice memos are really cool and fun because I can reply directly to you. Uh, look forward to that feedback. Just a quick reminder uh, the point of this show is to help create, help you create a profitable, healthy healthcare practice with a great culture 
making a huge impact that gives you the life you deserve, that best life, that best impact, whatever that is. However, if you still feel like you've got so many challenges, you wouldn't even know where to start. That actually just makes you normal. And so that's why the first step in the practice freedom process is to choose and implement what we call a business operating system. Now, I am an EOS guy, the entrepreneurial operating system. That's the system I've chosen. I believe in it. I believe it is the best job. It's simplifying complex problems. And so if you are considering the journey to practice freedom, that's the first step. And if you'd like to figure out if EOS is the right fit for you, please reach out, hit us at practicefreedom.com slash schedule to schedule a quick call with me to help decide whether or not EOS could be the right step for you. So Dr. Keith, man, so good to have you. Do you know you started this whole thing? <laughs> oh, did I? Yes, you did. I you think, started this mess. I think you give me way too much credit. Well, um, so it was it was a lightning strike. So when we were talking about what we were in the group together, trying to figure out our language and how the storytelling of what we do and how we do it. And I was working, workshopping through my stuff and you were like, man, that sounds like me. And, I, and so that was the absolute crystallization of like, okay, we got to focus this. There's, there, there are people very specifically like this. And so thank you for giving me the crystallization and the clarity and the guts to try this crazy thing that we're doing. No, thank you. I mean, when we do our next podcast, I want to have been a client of yours for at least a year because everything that you elucidated and illuminated in, in our sessions was literally me, your avatar, the, the guy who is visionary but too busy has a grand vision and has the work ethic and the wherewithal, but not the strategy and the know-how to expand beyond what his two hands can do. Despite the fact that your two hands are amazing, they're only two hands. And without the infrastructure strategically and the tools to assess your progress towards that goal, you kind of just keep floating in this grand circle that never quite gets you where you want to be. Man, so that there's there's a lot there. And so organizing my thinking, first off, it's a good call out. You're not a client. We've not worked together. We're friends. And so some of the interviews that I've done, the ones I'm most comfortable with are the ones that I either have been a client of mine or known them long enough to know what's behind the scenes. And so when I ask questions, I kind of know what the answer is. And so it's nice to have like the flow seems more natural. And so when I've interviewed people that I don't know at all, and I'm thinking I'm going to be able to answer some structured questions and get some sort of clear, crisp answers. Like sometimes I've chased my tail. So right. we, will, we, we will see how this goes. And I want this to be useful for the listener. But you're right on that point because one of the main things that came out of our early conversations was that there's a lot of pain in the mind, in the life of the entrepreneurial healthcare practice leader, potentially. It, there's a lot of things conspiring to make this person's life really hard. And so the three perils of private practice, as I'm calling them, are first, this challenge to figure out how to run a practice as a business because it's not we're not told to do that necessarily it's not something we learned in school but we're sort of figuring out by proxy that apparently this is, has to run something like a business and i don't know how to do that so this is hard then that that second peril is like well but at the same time what are we doing here are we trying to what practice are we trying to prevent blindness or cancer or take care of people what's the value what's the what how do we really 
create great outcomes and do that in a clinical setting and lead doctors to create good stuff, which then the third component of this is, and I'm not enjoying this. <laughs> I'm an individual and I'm trying to figure out how this is, is it looks easier from the outside and this, looks, this is really hard. And I think one of the main resonant pieces was for our conversation was, I think I got two jobs and I think they're both 80 hours a week. <laughs> What am I supposed to do with it? Does that resonate? Yes. I mean, exactly. So not only is your first barrel that medicine or healthcare and business don't naturally, in the hands of the provider, in the hands of the doctor or the optometrist or the chiropractor, do not necessarily, chiropractor perhaps less so, but do not exactly flow. I would argue that we're sort of indoctrinated in medical school and perhaps we actually self-select ourselves out by pursuing medicine to become people who feel a conflict between the provision of healthcare and the business of medicine, between the practice of medicine and the business of medicine. There's is some sort of inherent sort of conflict internally to say, well, I should be sort of willing to do this for free, or I, I came into this with the vision of helping people whether or not they had the ability to pay. And that sentiment continues. But you also realize I have student loans, I have a family, I have a business, I have 10 employees, their families rely on me, my family, like at a certain point, business has to be at top of mind or close to it, or you will perpetually struggle, even as a practitioner. And then understanding that your happiness, your productivity and your happiness are a very big part of you being able to be a good provider long term. I was always told that this thing is a, is a marathon, not a sprint. And my reply to that was always like, yeah, but I'm a sprinter. Like, I think that's what I do. I sprint till I'm, till I'm exhausted, and then I rest, and then I sprint again, and then I sprint again. And as I got older, I realized it has to be a marathon because you cannot keep the pace physically, emotionally, financially that you started off keeping when you were a resident working 80 to 100 hour weeks. And but you didn't have any kids or a wife, and then there are more layers of complexity. And then you realize that on the business aspect, not only do you have no training whatsoever, but even if you did, the business component of medicine is rigged against the primary practitioners, and it's rigged in favor of the billion-dollar corporations, the hospitals, the pharmaceutical companies, the insurance companies, to where even if you did have training, you would, have, you would still be losing. But given the absence of training, the complete and utter absence of training that we receive in business in medical school, you are just you're just powerless until you determine that you're going to have to educate yourself in those areas. So, man, a couple a couple of things just blew my mind. One of them really blew my mind, but I, I really think that there's things to to unpack here. And the first thing I'm going to go back and we'll, and end where you ended. The first thing you said that really caught my attention, and I don't know how I missed this. Maybe this is obvious, but guilt for charging money for something that seemed like never occurred to me that that was underlying. A lot, a lot of the physicians I work with, they talk about their fear of the culture, not understanding the compensation. We can't talk about numbers. We can't talk about this because they, you know, they don't pay, they make much money and they can't know what a plastic surgeon makes. And I'm like, yeah, they have a guess. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure they know it's a lot more than they make. And they, and so I, I've, 
push towards transparency to make sure we can educate people on business concepts and the profit for a business that's running $10 million is not $10,000. You know, you need at least $10, $15 million of profit coming through an organization just for a $100 million company, you know, 10%. I don't know what my example was, but it, you know, I'll say 10 to 20% needs to be on the bottom line to be a not at risk business. But it really didn't occur to me that in the heart of the physician who's making lots of money, definitely top 0.1% income is not just concerned that the rest of the organization can't handle that. They're, they feeling bad already. They're already a little guilt that they're doing this, charging this money. And then I guess this flows into some of the more sophisticated back end. Like, well, but it's if I'm charging the insurance company, then I'm not charging the patient. So that's okay. And so it, it, we, we got the mindset of retail and cash pay and then insurance and blaming the back end. This is it. So the, this, I think this is a nice kind of dovetail into the, into the last point you made, which was, okay, well, first we've admitted we don't have the business acumen. We didn't, we weren't given that. We need to get it. But let's be clear. This is like an absolute, very difficult, high-end chess game business. This is not your ice cream store. This is not a dry cleaner. This is a business that has advocacy and politics and mega corporations working against you and multiple business models and all kinds of tides of business sophistication at the 10 out of 10 level sophistication. And we're coming off, we're coming to it with zero. <laughs> And so right. it's a heavy lift. It's a heavy lift. Right. It doesn't take you very long to realize. And really when my eyes were open the most of how the sausage is made was when I began to sit on hospital boards and I was the quote unquote physician member of the, in the hospital board. And on the board, there are all types of business men and women who know nothing about medicine, but are making all the decisions for the hospital and in many ways for the practitioners. You got the owner of all the McDonald's franchises in town. You got the owner of the CEO of the electric company. You have this person, that person, and none of them have any clue in medicine. And yet they're making the policy decisions. And then you realize that very quickly that you as the practitioner is the only one that is sort of expected to come to the table and provide services without money being top of mind. You are sort of guilted, whether it be self-inflicted or just perceptional, you are guilted into feeling like you're the one person who should be walking into this transaction with no expectation necessarily of payment. And certainly, if not that, no expectation of the payment that would be worthy of your services. And one of the one light bulb experience that I, I, I of many that I can remember is walking to a room in the hospital, visiting a patient who had no money, he was indigent, had no insurance, I should say. And of course, I'm expected to treat this patient. And of course, I do and would and will and have treated these types of patients with the same level of, of excellence that I treat everyone else. But I walked into the room and I just serendipitously happened to walk in on the hospital bill collector sitting at the bedside of this very badly injured patient trying to get him to sign paperwork that said, you're responsible for paying the bills that this hospital produces to you, et cetera, et cetera. And I walked in really aghast, like, what are you doing? And she kind of jumped up and, and just scurried out as if I had caught her doing something wrong or unethical, when actuality, she was just doing her job. She was getting him to sign his life away on the paper and worrying about the bottom line. Meanwhile, that I hadn't even checked his, or I hadn't, like, imagine me sending my biller to the hospital 
to make a patient sign. I couldn't even imagine that. And when I walked in and saw that, I'm thinking, I'm the only one in this game that doesn't think about money first. And I'm not saying that in a necessarily a pejorative or judgmental thing. It's just the truth. I, as the practitioner who is providing the most valuable service in this equation, is the only one that, that is, is, is prepared or has been socialized or essentially brainwashed into thinking, you should not think of the compensation. You should just do the service and whatever happens, happens. And if you get paid, fine. If you don't, fine. This is the gift that you're giving back to society. So to take that, and, and trust me, in residency, it's a thousand times that. But to wash that away and try to get into private practice, and as you know, I'm on my own. I'm a dying breed of solo practitioners who are entrepreneurial, who own their own office, who own their own surgical center, who own their own this, that, or whatever. To stay, in order to stay independent and not be an employee, those are the things you have to do. But to transition from that prehistoric mindset to the mindset that we need to have to grow our vision and to help more people is such a giant chiasm and a giant leap. It's hard to even put it into words. There's a lot in there. So one of the things that I try to get people to think about is the value that private practices of any kind are providing. Because at one end of the spectrum, you've got... Well, I'll start at the other end. At the retail side, it's like somebody pops into my optometrist's office and let's let's sell them something for X dollars. There's a mindset of we're selling them these frames. Should we sell them something cheaper? Are we taking advantage of our employee of our of our customers and patients by forcing them to buy more glasses than they need or whatever, upgrading the lenses, and and it becomes kind of low value mindset transactional. We just use car salesmen at even lower transactional level. But we take a step back. What are we doing here? We are potentially, in an optometrist's office in particular, we could be curing people's migraines. We could be giving people vision they've never had before, relief in their job, style that they like. We can really give them something that they want to buy if we get our mind right on it. And what we find often is dentistry is actually really good at this. Dentistry, dentistry will like, look, we got a bunch of really expensive stuff. You don't have to buy it. But if you like it, you can buy anything you want. And people are like, that's amazing. I'll spend thousands of dollars on discretionary cosmetic dentistry. And they love it. They love it, love it, love it. <laughs> They're not forced to buy it. They're buying it all day long. And so it's a really good example to see what happens when you, when you charge a fair price for high value. And so all throughout healthcare, in any capacity, it's weird how we forget that like this is high value stuff, mind-blowing, life-changing. We're preventing blindness. We're getting people to walk again. We're getting people to finish marathons who couldn't walk. We're doing things that are just amazingly high value that if you said, look, what would you pay for that? Like a lot. I would happily pay a lot for that. And then at the end, so that's the mindset I'm trying to really drive into this community, the entrepreneurial healthcare. Like let's really get comfortable with how much amazing value we provide. And when you like as an entrepreneur put a fair market price on it, it's people are like, no, I don't, have, I don't have a problem paying that. That's that's actually a very, I'll pay that. When it doesn't go through the insurance system or the hospital system, it comes out the other side alive because so much of what you're talking about is what contaminates this. The pricing in the hosp, in the hospital system is completely ludicrous, well beyond, unrelated to value, like like uncorrelated at all to value. Right. <laughs> it's just basics, uh, random. And then you're sort of decoupling the mindset of you as the provider who's like, 
Hey, do I have value? No, it's free. It's, well, what? What if we actually could connect that I'm doing something really valuable? And part of it's not just healing you. It's like being nice to you and things like that. (laughs) Because in the free market, we get paid for being nice to people because that's actually what people want. So it's it's interesting to see how far those worlds are apart. And yes, even the mindset, and I, and my one of my really good friends lives two doors down. He's one of the best plastic surgeons in, in, in the country. And the mindset of insurance, accepting insurance, being tied to insurance, and then retail medicine, where you people come in and you have to you treat them nice and, and it's fancier. It, it is such a it's a lot more difficult to leap from one to the other. I almost feel like you know I have a weight loss program. That, that is a retail type of a thing. And I have other businesses that are, and I almost have to go find employees that are not medicine. They were never trained in medicine. I have to get them from Starbucks. I have to get them from some other service industry. Because I, I, that land is so great for me. Cause I was like, I, I see that all the time, but you're like, I have to get them from Starbucks. And it's just like absolutely absurd to like making coffee. They get how to take care of people. They, they just know, yes, seriously, because, that's where we're at. Because exactly because <laughs> because the employees that are trained, even not just doctors, the medical assistants, the nurses, they're sort of they have this mentality of well, you have to come to us. And part of that is the fact that the system can be rigged, and the fact that insurance is forced. You have in-network providers and out-of-network providers, and I have patients who I've taken care of their entire family for years, and then they come to me and say, "Hey, my insurance told me that you're out of network." And therefore, I can't come to you. And I'm like, what, what sense does that make? And they're just arbitrarily creating lines of division where patients can't gain access. So, so then they're limiting patients to go to the doctors they want them to go to. So there, it's no wonder that the doctor's offices are just kind of like, well, have a seat. We'll get to you when we get to you. Your insurance said you had to be here. It's just a toxic mentality that you have to break. By going out and getting someone in the service industry who just knows how to say hi and smile and bring them in. And it's a shame, but it's true that if you go to the retail side, and I would, if I spoke to him, I can guarantee you much, many of his employees came from the cosmetology industry or the mm-hmm. service industry, or the beauty industry, not medicine. Because it's much easier to teach them medicine than it is to teach them the hospitality and the service that is requisite to grow up a business that is commercial and that is transactional versus insurance. It's mind-blowing that that's the case, but that's right. That's, and I, I don't know, I think there's a couple of strata of mindsets in a healthcare organization, that down to like the expert, the master of the organization, which I guess there are two types of that, right? So there's the master who's leading the organization, perhaps the visionary, like this, this is the kind of medicine we practice. This is the care we provide. This is what we do. And then we've got, you know, I hate to kind of break it down like this, but this is the reality, sort of the money machines, like, you know, we, the doctors, the physicians, the lanes, the ODs, whatever, the chiros that are like, they were there to produce that work. We have to have that mindset, which I, I do think we want to teach capitalism as a good thing. Capitalism, I talk about this a lot. Capitalism is an economic system. It's not a moral system. And so like, let's stop trying to act like it is. It's not, you, you need a moral system. You need that. That's your core values. That's your purpose. You as the leader have to bring that. And so do, and then plug that into capitalism, which is, you know, in shorthand, we'll call that business. We'll turn it into a business model. that's value creation, value measuring and measured in profit and put people into that. But you've got that, which needs some, real mentorship because it's not, I think the mindset has been that 
a doctor is a doctor. Can you do this work? Are you, are you, are you, a, are you a liability or not? Are you available you, or, or not? And that is not what it turns out to be. There are core value fits. Do you believe what I believe? Do you really think about great outcomes for patients? And are you as passionate about doing this work as I am? Or do you want to just kind of get into a set and forget it? You took the career because your family pushed you in this direction and you just want to make a good paycheck? Because there's massive difference between really good doctoring and just phone it in doctoring. And that, and that was a total eye-opener for me in the last 10 years of how massively different you that know, is. You know, I, I'm glad you hit on that. I mean, that, that should be obvious. There, there are virtuosos. And then there are wedding gig musicians. Not to say you can't be a virtuoso in, in a wedding gig musician. You got to pay the bills. You got to pay the bills. But there are virtuosos that are just amazingly excellent at what they do medically, surgically. And then there are average and then there are below average. But the problem is, is the customer on face value oftentimes doesn't know the difference. And it's, it's and, 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 and sadder still, the hospital's, and the insurance companies don't care right. who's yeah. great and who's not. Mm-mm, and they so don't. if the physician, they, in fact, they would rather have a very average or sub-average doctor who just does what they want them to do versus an excellent physician that, that in a pinch, because I've been that excellent physician that, that in a pinch, the CEO calls you and says, hey, my mom's in the ER. Can you come in and treat her? And, and you as the doctor are saying, but you're, you've been promoting this other doctor as the best in town, and he's on your staff, and he's your this, and he's your that, and wh- why are you calling me? Well, I need you to come in and take care of my mom. Okay, we all know what that means. But again, they don't necessarily promote excellence. And hospitals can define their own level of quality. They can define what quality is. And much of the time, what hospitals and insurance companies define as quality is not what a virtuoso surgeon or a great doctor would define as quality. They're more concerned with you signing your medical records in a timely fashion and billing, billing out quickly and doing certain things quickly that translate to money and to cash flow. You're more concerned with patient care and protocols and, and quality and real quality. And yet you don't get to define it. They get to define it. So they can ultimately create an environment where the best doctors are actually not even recognized as the best. But yeah. you on the inside know, the CEO knows, the board of directors know, because when they get sick or they get hurt, that's who they text and that's who they call. But on the outside, they would never let anyone else know that there are tiers of doctors and they, it's in their best interest that we as providers be interchangeable so that we don't gain quote unquote, too much power, too much influence, because whenever they're ready to move on, they need to be able to move on. Whenever you become too expensive Mm -hmm, or too inconvenient or too costly, they need to be able to plug in another doctor who everyone knows is not as good as you, but it doesn't matter. We got to be able to plug and play. And the more they're dependent on those virtuoso doctors, those excellent physicians, the more vulnerable they are in a sense, business-wise, to having to accommodate those positions as opposed to just plug and play. Okay, we got a new guy out of residency. Let's go. And they're fine with that. Well, that's what I think is so important about, well, there's two things I think are super important about entrepreneurial healthcare, entrepreneurial leadership in that sense that I think some of the hospital systems, the ones we know, the tier ones and the highly branded, the MD Andersons and Houston Methodists and places like, you know, they, they do a pretty good job of building a brand big, big organizations, big organizations. And you got, so you have that stratification throughout it. And 
and so that there's good and bad in that. But outside of that, it's kind of generic. Every, I mean, everything is, you know, lab coat. And that's kind of my go-to metaphor. Like, we got to take the lab coat off in healthcare. Man, it's just making everybody seem the same, and we're not. And I just, you know, when you hire a marketing company, if you hire a landscaper, you hire anybody, they're all supposed to be the same in your mind, right? But if you if you do the due diligence, you're like, well, this this is a totally different organization. They care about totally different things. And I can't use this marketing firm because they, they're all digital and I need experience. Or in, even in you know landscaping, I'm discovering that there's people who have very different ways of how they do landscape or how they mow your lawn even. And so this generic approach in the middle is serving no one. And I think that this is the opportunity is massive to say, you know what, we have a way. And the people in this organization, we care about some very specific things and really meet the expectations set the expectations, deliver on super high value. Cause to the, I guess I really can't get over this point of how I, my eyes got so wide open to the vast gap between great doctoring and bad doctoring. Like, and so I, I, whoever's listening to this is probably like, yeah, of course, Mark, you're, you're just figuring that out. But yeah, I'm the patient. I'm not the doctor. So you should assume that the rest of the world is very clueless to that. And the opportunity to, to dramatically show like, hey, by the way, this is great doctoring. This is great healthcare. We take care of your eyes. We take care of your health in whatever capacity at a high level. The field is wide open. You can tell that story because n- not that many people are trying <laughs> Yes, I think, again, I think it might be difficult for lay people who are not in medicine and even many who are to understand what you're saying, because it sounds so simple and it may even sound like it should be obvious. Yes, there are good doctors and there are bad doctors. There are good nurses. There are bad nurses. But it's not that simple because the, 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 I guess the title or the label of good is multifactorial. It's, it's about patient experience. And it's about outcome. And oftentimes, many of the best surgeons may, may focus too much on outcomes where they may have excellent outcomes, but not enough on the patient experience and how they and giving the warm fuzzies. And then there are some dog practitioners who are not, who, in all honesty, I wouldn't let touch my dog, but right, right. They, they're very charismatic. They kind of understand some, in some ways the customer experience and and maybe do a better job than others who have better surgical skills, who are much better, you know, technicians, and yet don't understand. You have to understand both, and then you have to be able to communicate it or so, yeah. purvey it. So yeah. let's go there. For, I, I, I want to turn my passion down a minute and turn this into tactical tangible. So tactical <laughs> tangible is the dermatologist I saw for years. She was so disciplined. Like you, saw, you, you showed up at 11, you were being seen at 1105. And you were right. out 1125. And I was like, this is incredible. This is a core value. This is something in your product. I love this. It's amazing. You should be hanging your hat on this. That is a value attribute. You don't have to be all things to everybody. You should not be all things to everybody. Entrepreneurial healthcare should say, you know what? We have a, an on-time, on-budget. You'll be in and out in 20 minutes. And this is exactly your experience. And this is what we do. Other experiences, I, you know, from my internal medicine, I go to UT Medical and it's a teaching situation. I'm there for three hours, two doctors. Yeah. I love that. I want two doctors. <laughs> right, right. And so that's right. the kind of thing you say, you know what, here's the experience. It's going to be two doctors. It's going to be three hours. And we're going to, and we're going to get you to whatever the experience is. We are really focused in this optometry practice around complete eye health. And here's how we handle dry eye. Here's how we handle myopia management. Here's all these other things that just get lost in the, like we're another optometrist. 
So there is so much story to be told and a lot of the things that you may take for granted as a practitioner. But the essence and maybe the good, maybe the bad here is that it's not all things to everyone. You're going to have to do the work and say like, okay, we can be really great in some ways. What's our specialty? Are we the retina specialist? Are we the only, are we the absolute best in the world retina people with research and clinical combined? And I'm actually thinking of a very specific company that actually does that. And so they can build a reputation around a small number of things and really provide excellence. And so I guess the bottom line on that is you will define excellence. You as the, as the visionary healthcare leader should be saying, we're going to make a small number of rules that define our version of absolute best-in-class healthcare excellence. And it's going to drive super high value. And we're going to feel great about getting paid for that. However, we're going to either reduce our costs because of insurance volume or whatever, or we're going to add tons of value to the patient. We're going to be known for that. And people are going to have an amazing experience. It's not going to be a generic and we're going to be best by our own definition. Yes. So what you're saying, I can relate to that in, in that, one of the toughest things for me to do as a as a practitioner was to stop taking emergency room call. And for those who you know, don't necessarily know what that is, that is where you you, you volunteer, or you're paid, but you're paid a pretty low amount to be on call for a 24-hour period of time for the hospital. When you and so you're expected to see everybody who comes in, whether they have insurance or not, indigent or not, and that seems always like a good thing to do to pay back, to be available. And I was the king of call. I mean, I, I took care of so many indigent people from Juarez and people who uh, got run over by the border patrol and fell off of a bridge and shattered everything. And, and, and so, but all of my experienced partners were like, Keith, you've got to stop because you have to, as you alluded to, you cannot be everything. You cannot develop a, a, an excellent elective practice where you are able to be on time and be present and available and yet be having been up 24, 48, 36 hours in a row taking care of the most urgent, emergent things. You have to fit. And, I, and we know it's difficult, but when you fit, your, your life is going to get better. Your care overall will get better. And it was the hardest thing to do. I've been in practice 20 years. I just stopped taking calls probably five years ago. And magically, it's impossible to really... Like you said, be all things, serve, provide a great elective thing, elective practice, elective care, where you have an appointment and you come in and you're staying on time and yet see the guy that has 25 broken bones that just did it yesterday or last week and has a whole different level of acuity and need of care. And yes, you can do both, but you really cannot do both well. Like, because the more urgent thing is always going to derail the, even the paying customer who, who scheduled his appointment weeks in advance. When that urgency comes up, you as the doctor have to kick that paying customer to the side and say, I got to take care of this non-paying but more urgent medically customer. And so when I did finally generate the courage to stop taking calls, it was, you talk about guilt. <laughs> Like, I don't know why I felt so guilty because, and I still, honestly, if I'm honest, I still feel guilty because I feel, I know there are people going to these ERs and not getting the care that I would have given them. But I had to swallow that guilt and say, I don't take call. I'm sorry. I'm sure they have a great, I'm sure you'll be all right. Come see me afterwards or come see me later. And that guilt still riddles me. Because I see some outcomes that I know I would have done better. 
And today was an example where I saw some patients who were seen in another ER setting and had some things done. And, and once they got out, out of the emergent, emergent acute stage, they said, I want to see Dr. Johnson. And they came to see me. They were broken up. It reminded me of my trauma days. And I, I was able to take great care of them. But that transition, that ability or that courage to say no to something so that you can be better at other things and then ultimately to try to build your vision of what you would like the best care, health care to look like in your practice, it requires you being able to say no and to set boundaries despite your guilt, despite your indoctrination, despite other things. In order to do the greater good, you have to say no to some other good. Well, that's such a great, you know, the, I was I was trying to write some notes in the, on the theme of what we're talking about. And the, there's been a kind of a through line here that is before we even click record, we were talking about how busy life is and the difficulty of saying no and all of the interpersonal life. And then all the way through into the branding, you know, well, you can't be all things to everybody. And this discipline of like, look, you got to say no. The, saying no is hard, hard for us, right? Absolutely. It doesn't always necessarily feel like the, you're doing the right thing. By saying no, even though you know you are in your brain, uh, your heart or your your culture, how you're raised. I was, you know, raised the son of ministers. My all of my, my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents, they were all ministers and ministry, 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 everything free. And and so mm. and, and even yeah. now, I, I think I'm the only one who's not a minister. Like I, I'm a medicine is my ministry, but. And I'm a musician. I play, you know, I sing in church, play in church, all that stuff. But that through thread, that that thread, definitely that thread of ministry is both what makes me great. It makes my bedside manner and my attentiveness and my desire to help that much stronger. But on the business side, I drive my business managers crazy because I'm like, now nah, we'll just do it. I don't care. You didn't get paid. That's okay. We're going to do it because I, I, told, I told them I would do it. I know I'm out of network. I know I'm not going to get paid. I know this is going to be good. I, I recently did two surgeries on probably two of the wealthiest people I know, and they were at my surgical center, and it was all free because they were out of network. They needed it done by a certain time because they're leaving to Europe or whatever, and they didn't want anyone else to do it, nor did I want anyone else to do it. So I had to just do it without the insurances, of, you know, guarantee of payment and i'm talking to my wife like these are probably two of the wealthiest people I, I that i know that anybody would know and yet somehow i had hesitancy of saying hey i need to charge you because your insurance is not going to pay and i'm doing this at a certain time <laughs> yeah. and at your will and your whim and I, i'm i'm delivering the most amazing service one was the both of them were athletes and i put them back together and they're throwing better than they've ever thrown and they're and I'm like, I did that for free. It's, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but at the time, I just couldn't navigate how to switch from insurance-based care to retail care, how to present it, how to bill it. I'm the good cop. I can never be the bad cop. My business is just such a, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to relate this anecdote, but it's true. I'm I'm thrilled that you did because to me it really glues together the whole thing that this is a very very difficult headspace 
It really is. It's a lot of it's a lot of pushing and pulling. It's a lot of giving and getting. It's the super high stakes. There's insurance companies. It's bureaucracy. It's care. It's it's the guilt. And so, like, if you're leading the organization and you're feeling like, hey, this seems a little complicated. That's because it's freaking complicated. <laughs> you're trying to do, you're trying to be all things to everybody in an infinite world. And you're trying to either get paid or not get paid at the same time. And you got to unwind a lot. So for me, the, listening to this, if it's resonating, then you got to be thinking, well, I want you to be thinking, be patient. That there is some purpose and there's some, there's some things you can do to figure out what is driving you. What is your superpower? What are your superpowers? What are the great things you're doing? This is the hardest one. I can throw this out there like super strong philosophical introspection. What are the amazing things you're doing that are sacrificing the even greater things that you could be doing? We're got to give, got to be, got to be doing call, got to be taking call. Well, what am I, what's paying the price for that? My family, my, my other practice, my practice, I could be better. Could I be learning to lead the organization better? Could I be leading four other doctors in my practice, 10 other doctors in my practice that, that, who need me to guide them? And then I'd have 10 other doctors doing you know, 20% better as opposed to me being running hot all the time, never having patience and time and listen, be able to give people my attention. There, that's where you're at. So as a doctor, as any kind of healthcare provider, you know, people love to talk about the God complex. And my, and one of the things I'm kind of working through the language of is like, well, that's might be true. Like you might be able to do some amazing stuff. And, you know, I don't want your ego running away. I want your humility creeping in and saying like, you're finite. I think that maybe that's the, maybe that's the sort of the thing I want to galvanize. Like you, you have inhuman capacity to do things in a human finite constrained body. And so we're going to have to bring that reality of the high value to the humility of like you run out. And if you don't use it well, you're wasting it. And that's horrible. And it's a hard journey and some of it's personal. So, I mean, I cannot imagine and you're, and I, I don't know how we're going to go with this, but you also have, your wife is a doctor. Right, yes. pediatrics, a pediatrician. Yes. So, like, yeah. so I can imagine, like, who's more important right now? <laughs> I'm the mom. You know, I always... Yeah, you don't have to imagine. Mom always wins. You don't, have to, you don't have to guess or imagine. That is a that's a quick. She's number one. And fortunately, I've been I've been successful enough to where she hasn't had to practice in many years. Like, she's a stay at home mom, even though she's a pediatrician. So that's. Again, that's the gift that I've given my children that helped me to deal with my guilt of not being available to my children as much. Right. And so, so she's currently a stay-at-home mother. But I think the common theme and thread is, so I, what, what I have learned, uh, even in talking to you, and, and, uh, is that I, there definitely has to be um, a good cop, bad cop. You have to have a business office. You have to have somebody to say no. Because everybody knows if they get to me, it's going to probably be a yes. And so it's almost like having the, the lenient parent and the strict parent. Like if I can get to, if I can get to grandma, grandma's going to say yes. And they know, even my office manager says, everybody who comes in and says, Dr. Keith, and they don't call you Dr. Johnson, they call you Dr. Keith or Keith. I already know that patient's going to be trouble because they're already <laughs> coming in with a familiarity with you, either because they know your parents who are ministers. They know your dad, they know your mom. They knew you since you were little. Again, that's the peril of practicing where you grew up. It's good and bad. I grew up in El Paso, so I'm practicing here. And they know you too well. And so they, they're already entitled and think they, they can get anything they want. And the sad part is they're right. If they get to you, you're going to say yes no matter 
almost what you have to twist to make it happen. And, and actual, in actuality, the fact that I'm an independent practitioner with my own office, my own surgical center, my own this, my own that, I actually can say yes. Whereas if I was an employee of, of, of a huge conglomerate, no matter what I said, my yes would be overridden by the no of the corporate policies or the no of whoever was above me. And so in many ways, my, my determination to, to maintain autonomy and independence so that I can help people who, had I, if I was an employee, I would have to say no to, sometimes that works against me because I do say yes to people who perhaps I should say no to or at least refer them to my, my business manager or my accounts manager or my office manager or the or, what essentially becomes the bad cop who's going to say, yes, Dr. Johnson can do this, but we're going to need this much payment and this is what we're going to provide and this is the structure. And, you know, you have to, as the doctor, in my opinion, have that type of a support system around you because it's important to the integrity of what we do, at least for me, to be the one that is a yes, is able to make things happen. And you have to have somebody to constrain you in some way to say, yes, Dr. Johnson, but you already have 12 surgeries on that day. I know you promised them that day. I know they won it that day, but you cannot do this. And so I'm learning that. I'm 51. I'm still learning. Well, you pointed at a lot of things that I don't want to unpack all of them because we actually burning some time here and I want to get you on with your day, but it's a lot of great stuff. So I can't quite cut myself off yet. This concept of in the system I teach EOS is the visionary and the integrator. And I don't talk a lot about it and it's so explicitly in the in these interviews necessarily because a lot of people I talk to aren't really familiar with them. But this concept of visionary and the integrator is the idea that there might be in your organization someone who is really passionate about the purpose and the future and the vision that we got to go. We got to do more, 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 and there's a reason to be here. And the integrator, the boss type of person who is more data-driven, who is very often in healthcare practice seen as that business person, the general manager or the operations person, but really the boss of the business who is in charge of saying, yes, and we have a plan and there are budgets. And if we go beyond, bad things happen. And you have to pair up the yes person and the no person. And so we're really pointing to that polarity, which is really important because we need both. We need both. Yeah, it's, not, yeah. it's not like you just show up and you're like, I'm sorry, we run by spreadsheets. Like that's not a good business. That's not entrepreneurial. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm 0% endorsing that. We also need somebody who says there is a way and there is a purpose. And you know what? We're going to give it away because it matters. And when you put those together, there's really powerful stuff that, that, that comes because there's a galvanization of like, well, I'm going to break the rules for these reasons. But if you break it by this much, that's too far because there, there is a too, pri- too high a price to pay for that. And having that polarity between those two mindsets is, is very, very important. And I think it ties back to the freedom and autonomy that is so important for you, which I think is, you know, that's really where the visionary leaders of the organizations need to live. And hopefully at some point it tightens up to be specific types of freedom and specific types of autonomy, but it starts there feeling, and I think probably the message from this is if you're craving more freedom and you're craving more autonomy, there's something pretty specific that you would like to do. And we should figure out what it is. Like if, you, if you're leaving value on the table and that's what freedom is about and autonomy is, that you're feeling like you're out of alignment with something. That, and that's, I learned that years ago, that the entrepreneurs right. who sell their business work for a larger organization 
the expectations that they need some more autonomy and that's why they can't work there. That's not the case. The case is that they're out of alignment with the leadership of the existing organization and they're like, I'm not, I don't want to row in this direction. I don't need autonomy for rowing in the right direction, but we're not rowing in the right direction. So the, if you're craving autonomy, my question is always the same. What's the right direction? Because if we can get clear on what you want, we can get other people to row in the right direction with you and we can really make a difference. And then we can just inform like, what are the limits? It's like if we go, if we give too much stuff away, when do we start actually working against our purpose and make sure we're all in alignment and focus at energy? Because it's just too common that healthcare organizations are just are just wasteful around. They're just not efficient. They're just not efficient, and they could be, and they could right. be delivering that much more value. You're right. I think again, the common theme in everything is freedom. Freedom for the practitioner, the visionary, to realize his dream of how best to help the maximum amount of people in the highest way. And isn't it funny that freedom requires constraint? You know, those, those <laughs> yes, two things seem oxymoronic, but freedom requires constraints. It requires boundaries. It requires discipline. It requires saying no. And the less constraints you put on yourself, the less freedom you have. That sounds totally crazy, but we know in this context, that if we don't have a partner or a department or, or a segment of the business that will constrain your tendencies to give the farm away and to constrain your time and to try to put you in the most productive situations to do the things that only you as the doctor can do and delegate the rest, even if you can do, you know, I probably can do intake better than my intake person and I could probably do x-rays better than my x-ray person. But that doesn't, just because I can doesn't mean I should. And so to be able to constrain yourself to do just what your skills exclusively are capable of doing, no one else can do this, Dr. Johnson. Let everyone else do the other stuff that they can do to allow you more freedom to do what only you can do, bigger, better, faster, stronger. Look, man, we have covered a ton. And we were running around in circles, or I've been running around in circles a little bit with my passion around the subject. Is there anything we missed? No, I, I mean, I mean, as we suspected, you and I could talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and, and probably not even uh, circle on the same subject. But, uh, but no, I mean, I appreciate this opportunity to talk with you and to share my, my, a portion of my experience in healthcare. And I hopefully added some value or gave some of your listeners something to chew on. Yeah, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. What's your passionate plea to entrepreneurial healthcare leaders right now? You know, I, I always feel like I scare off all of my medical students that shadow me because I talk so much about happiness, being able to define, having the courage and the, the discipline to define what success means for you and what happiness means for you. And in my opinion, we need to cultivate the independent practitioner. I try not to bash doctors who come out of residency who want to be employed. Everybody has their own reasons for joining the billion-dollar conglomerate or being just an employee. And, and many of them are under the incorrect assumption that if I, if I sign as just an employee, I don't have to worry about the business side. I don't have to worry about this. I don't, the truth is, is you do. You, you just don't know it yet. And so my plea to is as many who have the stomach for it to try to be entrepreneurial and to try to be as independent and autonomous as possible because really 
I, that's what's going to save medicine in, in, in general, I think. I think I, I hate to be too grandiose. <laughs> my, no, I, I'm right there with passion. you. I'm 100% right there with you. Yeah. But, but that is really the saving grace of what medicine should be. Because once we already know that the corporations are primarily profit driven, they don't claim to be ethical, they don't claim to be anything but, they don't hide it. They really, well, they don't even try to hide it very much anymore. And so once they become the owner and arbiter of all medical practices, all over the country, and there are no independent middle-level uh, entrepreneurial providers. Then we would just—we might as well not be doctors at that point. We might as well let artificial intelligence draw out protocols and just—and they'll be based on profitability and things that have really nothing to do with medicine. And the more we go down that path, the worse medicine will be. And so, my passionate plea to all my medical students, my residents, and people are just really to try to sustain your autonomy, your practice freedom, if you allow me to borrow that. And of course. Because that's really what's saving. And I even tell my employee doctors, you need to be rooting for me. All of my friends who are employed, I'm like, you need to be rooting for me to succeed because as long as I exist, you have a little bit of leverage against the conglomerate to say, yeah. you know what, if you do, if you go too far, I'm going to join Dr. Johnson or I'm going to go out and do what he did and I'm going to compete with you. And as long as there are that, there is that segment, everybody else has a better balance and a, a, a better level of leverage to hold the line, so to speak, on what medicine should be. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I'm right there with you. I think I agree on a lot, of, especially with the idea of be selfish about what's going to make you happy. What's going to, you, you're going to have to do some work for a long time. It should be work that's satisfying, that, that's gratifying and maybe hopefully, hopefully pushes you towards some degree of mastery that is something you can be really great at, which is a whole other topic, I think, to unpack. But let's just assume these, that these people want to do that. I think if there's, this, there's a garden that we're growing of entrepreneurial healthcare, entrepreneurial leadership, that when, if you want to be that entrepreneurial leader and you want to start something or create something your own, that's fine. And right now it's probably good because there's not as many as there could be. But as there become more and you're saying, you know, I really don't want to lead a practice. I want to follow an amazing practice that's aligned with me. Then there are some now, some entrepreneurial healthcare practices that have that. They're out there. But we need more. And so if you're the leader of that, that's great. That's what we need more of than anything right now. So down the line, people can say, you know what? You know, I just want to get in line over here because they have a great purpose and I'm into it. And I want to see a world where it's not generic. It's not hospital system or generic. And that we really have some choices about this is the firm I want, or this is the practice I want to be a part of because they really do amazing stuff. And I have a role and this is my role. And, and that's the world we're going to try to create. And I do think, because we know that the model of small business and entrepreneurial growth in the United States, all the innovation comes from the entrepreneurial community. Everybody knows that the healthcare system is massively toxic through, like there's no secret about right. insurance and pharma, what it has done to really create massive, unbelievable, massive inefficiency and corruption. And the way out of that is entrepreneurship. And to the extent that we can create this garden nationally, internationally of entrepreneurial healthcare leaders, the solutions, because there are not just one, there's lots of them that will come up, can grow. And we can transform it in unexpected ways. And so this is hopefully the contribution we're creating is creating the confidence and the passion around people who think, you know, 
it's not dead. Like healthcare, there is, there's the mindset of like, oh, healthcare is, you know, I would never advise somebody to be a doctor anymore. Hopefully those people are not advising people because th- there is that mindset of the old, you know, mom and pop that you can't be pro- profitable in that world anymore. And you can't, but you can be very profitable as an entrepreneurial healthcare organization. And you should be excited about the opportunity of to grow an organization that makes massive impact, that is massively efficient and provides a great culture and great place to work and all the things that go with that. So I'm super excited to feel like we can really champion all the things that are entrepreneurial in healthcare and leadership. And so I'm grateful to hear your story on this and, and, and thanks for catalyzing so much of this. And thank you. Well, thank you. And we, we're going to work together because it, it, we can't not. I mean, we both have the same visions. And so I'll be in touch. And I really appreciate you having me on your podcast. Of course, man. How does somebody, if, if they want to keep up with you and what's going on in your world, how does somebody find you? Well, I, Dr. Keith Johnson, not, uh, I think my Instagram handle is Dr. Keith R. Johnson 915. That's the area code of El Paso. You can reach out to me there. And I also have a brand that's called Just What the Doctor Ordered that I'm sort of launching. And so it's going to be an attempt to try to, again, offer some of the things that medicine has has forsaken, such as health and wellness. We have a sick care system, really, not a health care system. And so that's something we, that's a whole nother show uh, to talk about. But as doctors, I do feel the responsibility to really focus more on wellness, health care, prevention, as opposed to waiting until you're completely broken. And so those are some of the other passions I have. So again, I really appreciate having this conversation with you. Awesome, man. Well, that's our time for today. We will see you next time on Practice Freedom with me, Mark Henderson Leary.